Hey, hotties, it's that time of year again. We want to tell you how thankful we are for all of your support this year. So we are having another Black Friday sale. You got it. That's our biggest sale of the year in our shop. And you are able to take 25% off all of our digital downloads and resources for designers, except our new Pinterest for Interior Designers Masterclass. Yeah, that one's a little bit different. But the sale dates are Monday, November 20th to November 27th. So you get Monday to Monday, a full week to grab that 25% off. You've got it. And all you've got to do is go to shop.hotingdesignersclub.com and use coupon code THANKFUL at checkout. Thanks, hotties. This episode is brought to you by Daniel House Club. Daniel House Club simplifies the process of sourcing and purchasing by giving designers access to over 150 trade vendors in a single place. They've saved designers over $2.5 million in purchase costs in the past year. You'll get paid whether you send a cart to your client or you purchase directly. And they'll help handle the order logistics. Hotties can join Daniel House Club and save 50% off their first year of membership by going to danielhouse.club HYDC today. Welcome to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast. I'm Rebecca Plum, your big sister. And I'm Sean Serha, your GBF. We're not that hot or that young. But we believe it's a state of mind that helps us build adaptable and profitable businesses. We rely on the support of our design besties to get through each day. So let's explore the emotional, practical, and humorous sides of being interior designers. Welcome to the club. Hey, Sean. What's up, Rebecca? We have some friends with us today. Yes, absolutely. We love a good guest episode, don't we? And this week, I don't know, have we done two guests before? I don't mm. think we have. Oh, I so, don't know. That might anyway. be completely new. <laughs> Not to draw this out. So today we have Heather and Steve Tankersley. They are of Tankersley Construction. And we talk about contractors a lot on here. So we thought we'd bring one on and really get their point of view. Or two, yeah, <laughs> one company. Can you guys tell us like who you are and kind of a little bit about Tankersley? Yeah, I'm Steve Tankersley, and I started this company with Heather in like 2017. Heather and I are married, and I the company has evolved as we've grown. Where I'm, I'm kind of in primarily a role of sales, marketing, estimating, customer acquisition, and that's my main role. And I'm also managing a couple of projects right now. Um, Heather, why don't you talk about what you do? Yeah. So Heather Tankersley, the other part of Tankersley Construction. So I oversee the production side of the company. So all of the, you know, uh, overseeing our project managers, our lead carpenters, and our production staff. Um, so I'm actually boots on the ground, you know, reviewing constructability, design documents, working through those with our team um, to ensure that we're putting work into place the way that it is designed and intended to be designed and you know overseeing all the financials on the back end so that was my job before i moved over full-time i supported tci in the background and i moved over full-time in 2019 and you guys are in northern california i know you from local designers and friends here and where is your region that you work is it primarily in the sacramento region yeah we really keep it close to sacramento and you know, Heather and I, we both were in commercial construction before this. And if you're in commercial construction, a lot of times it takes you all over the state. And it's a little bit why we started this company is we want to stay hyper local. So we live in, you know, kind of the Folsom, El Dorado County area. We try to keep in that area. So 
we'll tell people we'll work from, you know, Davis, California to Auburn to Elk Grove, but really off of Highway 50 is really our bread and butter. Yeah, keep those miles down. <laughs> the goal. Well, it's more than just miles. I mean, it's really about being able to serve your customer, right? And so there's a lot of contractors that say, yeah, we'll, do, we'll work all over the state. And the reality is if you have a warranty call, you have a service call, do you really want to be driving two hours to go take care of a leaky faucet on a Saturday? So by keeping our projects local, like we can really serve our customer and be responsive on things really quickly. I mean, I think we've both had those different experiences with where anyone will hustle to get the project or get the job, but then maintaining it and keeping up with it is a whole other question. And even we've, <laughs> I could speak for myself, like I'm spread from like the northern part of LA County, sometimes to the northern part of Orange County. And yeah, they spend a half a day on the road. That whole day is gone. I can't get to anyone else or I'm too tired to do more work on other projects that day. So it's, I think it's really smart to have that niche that you're focused on. Yeah. And what does your team look like? I like that you guys have really like individual lanes that you're in, but who, like how many folks are in your team? I know you've been growing a lot. Yeah. So Steve has all the sales and the estimating side. And so we have an estimator, Sean, that he works with. And then we have an office manager. We have a controller in-house. So that's kind of our in-house office staff. And then in the field, we have four carpenters, a production specialist, um, project manager, and a production manager. So really kind of these leads that are on site that, you know, that's your person, that's your guy that's on site overseeing, making sure we're coordinating between the plumber and the electrician and who's going to rough in first and making sure that we're really following the design docs and that we're building to, you know, all the details that we need before we close the walls, right? Like we're really, really focused on and we do a lot of work in kind of that forefront. So having that dedicated person on site really helps make sure that we follow all those pieces and parts as we're going through the build. I mean, that sounds like a lot of people. It does, right? Like, yeah, I mean, we have right now, we have ourselves and we have 10 employees, right? So it's 12 people in the company. And a lot of people think that every contractor is kind of created the same where, you know, we're a company, right? You're hiring a company. You're not hiring Steve Tankersley or Heather Tankersley. Hire a company. And, you know, we have an office. We have, you know, our names on the truck. And so that's really different too, is when I, when I talk to clients, talk to designers, well, you know, if you're looking for the, you know, the best price is probably not going to be us, right? Because we have all these people in place, but that's also how we deliver the product we're delivering. I mean, we deliver very high quality work. And we do multiple jobs at any given time. And we have a much higher capacity. So versus, you know, we call him a chuck and a truck contractors. It's one guy and works with his brother or his cousin. And, and you know, those, those are kind of hit and miss. And sometimes you find a good one and you stick with them. Um, but they can only do one or two jobs at a time. And once they go on to the next job, good luck yeah. them back or anything. So that's really right. where, you know, our strengths are as a company. We can do so much more and do so much more effectively. What is the typical size or scale of the ideal Tankersley construction project? I'll answer that. I mean, I, and maybe Heather has a different answer too. You know, right now we're currently kind of in our average job size is right around $300,000. And that typically would be, you know, a you know, 2,000 square foot house remodel, a couple bathrooms, flooring, kitchen. That's really, you know, where we really shine. And people will ask us, can you do my, you know, my bathroom remodel, my half bathroom? Like, we'll certainly do it. And it's not that we don't want to do it. It's just we're not going to be the most effective because you don't need this big company to come in and do this little laundry remodel. Right. Love to do them, but we're not most effective. So when we start getting in above, you know, well above $300,000, we just built, you know, a $4 million house. 
And that's really where we shine. And that's where we're really getting lean on things when we're really being effective. So our most ideal project really varies, but where it's something that is more than one room, it's a renovation, you know, multiple rooms or a custom house or ground up. What do you think, Heather? I agree. Our team is so, we like the complex projects. We like the blow out the back of my house, add 1500 square feet and tie it into this weird roof line and put a beam in. That's where we really shine. And I think that's our team gets amped and excited about building because mm-hmm. some of those things might intimidate somebody else or that's going to take me you know, a year to do your project. And we're looking at it. We're like, well, we've done in six months. We can make that happen and we can execute and do a really good job. And so I think that's really yeah. where our strengths are. Well, yeah, because you're cutting, yeah, you're cutting down on those communication times where when I'm working with smaller contractors is we got to wait for so-and-so to get back to us. I mean, there's just two weeks sometimes between each yes or no. Like it, mm-hmm. it just takes forever. Yeah, and because so, you have yeah, a, lot times, really makes sense. a lot of times that owner is in the field, it's owner operator, they're framing, they're not checking their phone during mm-hmm. the day and you know they don't have the back-end yeah. support. So when we start getting into complicated projects, which, is, which projects generally are getting more and more complicated, especially if you have a designer involved, it's a lot of stuff going on you really got to have that team in place. And so I see a lot of contractors really fail where they don't have a team on the back end. There's one or two people trying to do all this stuff. They're trying to do $500,000 remodels. And they're going to fail because it's just too much going on. Mm-hmm. Trying to do three of them at the same time. It just adds to the stereotype. Every, yeah. It just adds to that stereotype of, you know, that terrible experience everybody has, right? Where it's, well, we did that addition project. It was terrible and it took twice as long and it was terrible, right? Like everyone has that story. Oh, that's like what we prepare clients for. It's like, oh, it's going to be longer it's than be you think. Terrible. It's going to be more expensive than you think. It's going to be. It's going to feel really exhausting for a while. You're going to feel like you're just writing checks, and it, it's like that. A, that's going to happen during almost any job. Anyway. Oh yeah. <laughs> like realistically, yeah, stress. <laughs> yeah, there's the stress, the anxiety, the pressure, the timelines, and and all of that gets to you. And then just yeah, you realize a lot of people have trouble with that non-tangible exchange of, oh, I'm spending all this money, but I don't have the thing yet. So Mm -hmm. it just feels like uneven. And so you add all of that in and we try as designers to do a good job. And I I know that a lot of contractors try to explain the process, but it becomes even more obvious like when you're saying, if it's just the two guys who are there doing the work all day, you know, they're there at seven, they leave at three, they're exhausted. They want to see their families. They want to have dinner with their family. They don't want to go home and write a complicated bid. And they're and not good calling. at computer stuff. I mean, that's not what <laughs> they, that's not where their strengths them. are. Like the guys yeah. that are hands on, like their strengths are not in Google Docs. And then chasing, <laughs> so. then they're chasing down other subs to get their bids on a larger job. Like that, it is a very complex operation to get all of those pieces moving together. And it's just hard when you don't have any thing built in behind it. And I know a lot of contractors also struggle with the idea, or at least I've had contractors who struggle with the idea of sort of passing that on to clients and making sure that clients understand, I can't just do all of this work for free in the hopes of a job anymore. There's so many projects going on. Let me spend four weeks building a bid for you that's super complicated, super detailed, down to the linear foot, and then you compare me to some guy who comes in underhand because he didn't put everything in the bid and you pick them anyway. It's just painful. How, how do you guys handle the bidding process? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I can touch on that. Years ago, back, I think it was like 2019, 2020, 
we integrated a pre-construction process in our in our you know in our process. And so every job we have, and this is going to be more and more common throughout you know hiring contractors throughout countries, we have a pre-construction process. And it's not just you're paying for a bid. That's certainly part of the process. We're going to end result is a bid, but it's really to evaluate. Hey, what are your design goals? What is your, what are your goals? To how you're going to live? What are your budget goals? And, and integrate with the designer. And so every job we have, we come in, and I can tell a client, you know, within 20 minutes of talking with them of what I think their projects could cost within plus or minus 20. percent I don't have to sit there and go through this whole exercise of getting bids. If a client shows me their kitchen, and then we do their kitchen, their family room, and their bathroom, I can usually sit there and say, well, you know, based on recent projects we've done, this is probably going to be 200 to 250 thousand dollars. That's not really an issue. Once we establish that, we can start going in and say, okay, well, what is your budget? Is your budget 180? If, if it's 250, we can figure out how to make that design work. And we work hand in hand with the designer. The best projects we're involved in is when we're involved in day one before the designer starts drawing things. So we can really give some sway on that. So what I see the, the most challenging projects being is when a client has a designer, they have an amazing floor plan and they see all the pretty things and they're already envisioning Thanksgiving you know, dinner at that in that kitchen. They're envisioning their kids running around. And then we come in and we break the news that this is double what they really want to spend. So if we can get involved early and try to sway that ship in the right direction of, well, what are your goals? How do we hit these? And not tell the designer how to do the job, but maybe give some parameters of Okay, well, we're going to stay within a you know five hundred dollars per light fixture allowance. We're going to stay within a two thousand dollar per countertop slab allowance, and really give some something to measure against. That's the most successful project. So every job we have starts off with the pre-construction phase, and that's evaluating design. You know, getting bids. Value engineering is what we call it when you kind of bring things down if we have to, and examining existing conditions yeah. so we know what's what we're expecting things to cost. I've had more contractors doing that too lately. And it does lead to a more accurate and like everyone's expectations are more aligned. I feel like going into the project, there isn't a sudden sticker shock when, I don't know, something changes or something's discovered down the road because the contractor takes a little more time to figure all that stuff out in advance. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's it makes I mean, sense. It's, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's a big investment. I would say, you know, each bid we do, each pre-construction process we do costs us thousands of dollars. And so to, to actually do it right, I always tell people, right. you know, you get what you pay for in life. If you're not paying for anything, don't be mad if your bid's not accurate. Don't be mad if they're not responsive. Don't be mad for taking six weeks to get it to you. You have no right to be upset because you haven't paid for anything. Now, if you're paying me for a service, you should be getting a result. And so you should be getting things on time, meetings, and also it gives us a little bit of a, mm-hmm. a trainer of how we're going to work together. You know, do we answer our phone? Do we show up on time to meetings? You know, do we present ourselves well? Does my, does my truck leak oil in your driveway? Like all those things you're evaluating early on. And we're interviewing our clients just as much as they're interviewing us. Hey, or is this person a good fit? Is this someone we want to be working with? And I tell clients this, they always get a little surprised. And I tell them, I'm interviewing you just like you're interviewing me. And, you know, if you come with that approach, that this is a two-way street, we're both equals. I think a lot of people, you know, get surprised by that, but that's really how you should treat your business. I mean, I love that from a philosophical point of view to tell clients like, hey, remember, we're not paying them for any of it. Like I might steal that line of, hey, you're not paying this cabinet maker for that quote right now. Like they're doing everything for free. You're getting all the information for free, all the numbers, all their time and energy. They're not going to get paid for any of it. There's no guarantee you're actually going to hire them. 
it's such a almost backwards way that contracting has been done for so long of just show up in the hopes that you get a job. It's like coming out for auditions over and over and over again at like a movie yeah. studio and you never get you never get the part, you know, or you get the part one out of every 10 times or something. And it's just painful. Eventually, contractors start deciding, hey, I can't invest that time anymore. I'm going to do quick and dirty phone calls with people where I tell them minimum jobs are 100 grand. And if I don't scare you off with that, you'll keep calling me. It, yeah. Is there any value of us as a standalone product? I guess my question is, do you guys do... So when I was in advertising, we would have a paid discovery process sometimes with a website, for instance, which is kind of similar. Like It's like a construction kind of project. So we would go look under the hood, figure out like, oh, you've got this and this. And we would deliver a um, kind of report of these are the things that are broken in your site. These are the things that need to happen. And here's what we're going to do. So we would charge for that. But a cu- we would always tell the client, like, you can take that information and go shop it somewhere else because we got paid for that part of the work and we're good. Does it work like that for... I know probably all contractors are different, obviously, but I'm just thinking some designers are really turned off by pre-construction because they're scared of how they're going to sell that to their clients. So I'm trying yeah. to figure out, is there any value that we can help? Yeah. I mean, we, at the end of the whole pre-construction process, after we've gone through and we've done our discovery, we've done a budget, we're going to be within this range. Do we need to address you know, this scope? We'll sit down and we have a very candid feedback meeting with the client where we'll go through the budget. We have a very detailed proposal that you know we put together. We'll look at that. That's where we kind of look at with the client, designer, the whole construction team. Do we need to pivot? Is this fit within your expectation? If they say yes, this is all the things we want you to address. You know, those scope letters can be anywhere from ten to fifteen pages long. Mm-hmm. Then we take that, and that's what we generate, and we give to our subtrades that we utilize, and that's what we tell the client: this is your time to decide because now we're going to go bid out the packages and confirm our number. And then at the end, we have a final proposal for them. If they do want to go at that point and say they want to compare apples to apples, they do have a very detailed, tangible scope letter that they can go to, but. Like we try to educate our clients and explain, you know, we know your job, right? We've looked at it from how, you know, in my mind, I'm already looking at your project of how are we going to tie in your roof line? What size, you know, footing are we going to need there? Okay. I, I have this built out as we've made this whole process and this whole proposal. And there's a big trust factor too. You know, I've been in your home, we've crawled around in your attic. Like there's a lot of that comes with it. And so, <laughs> understanding that too, like now you're going to go and engage somebody else to look at that. And are they going to look at it the same way I am? Maybe not. They'll still get to your end product. But at that point, you're really kind of coming down to this is what our cost is. And is this somebody you want to get married to and drive away in the car? And now we're tied together for a year, two years plus with warranty. Yeah. So that really, I think, establishes that. Rebecca, you mentioned that, you know, some designers are you know, hesitant with getting, you know, recommend a pre-construction process. And I think that, you know, maybe there's been experiences where the contractor might not be doing it in the, the best way manner, best manner forward. And I like to take it a super collaborative approach with the designer. And so everything we present to the client, it's always been um, reviewed and determined together with the designer before we go to the client. So for example, we do a finished allowance worksheet and we'll go through every single room in the house, but we have them down to cabinet hardware allowances. And we, if you were a designer on our project, Rebecca, we'd send that to you first and say, hey, how much should I plug in for a slab? What should I put in here? 
and you're giving that feedback. It's not just us telling you what you have to spend. You're like, hey, I had in mind, you know, I had my wallpaper in this bathroom at, you know, you know, $30 a square foot. Let's put that in there. And so if you're collaborative, the designers we work with love our process because it takes the, the anxiety of the pricing out of the designer's hands because you guys get those questions all the time where clients like, yeah, I have a $100,000 budget and we'll do a kitchen remodel. And you're, I think this will work. I don't know. Maybe you're not we'll seeing see. the prices every mm-hmm. day like we're seeing them. And so I know what this right. project's cost because right. that's all I do all day. Yeah, you already like, have other accurate bids to look at to compare to. Or the yeah. contractor put a $100 faucet in for an allowance. Yeah. And so we want to make sure we're work, putting so. in yeah. proper amounts. And so do we have a $1,500 yeah. faucet? In? And you know what's our goal, right? And so... And we have all kinds of different contract structures we can do. I just got off of a proposal review meeting with a client. We're doing a cost plus fee agreement. Everything is open book. The client sees everything literally that we're, we see. So they see our labor rates. They see our bids. They see our markup. They see every dollar we're going to make on the job. And that's one approach. And we can do that with the right client for the right project. And we have those, the capacity to, to do those kinds of different you know, contract structures. So you know, it really just comes down to being a team and making sure that our designer, us, and the client are all team. Because if one thing's out of whack, this is not going to be a good project. No, I love that. What percent of your projects would you say you're working with a designer? 100%. 100%. We will not do a job without oh, wow. a designer. Okay. We won't do it. Yeah, we awesome. would tell people this. They go, well, I'm going to design. I had a client, you know, 5,000 foot house in Sacramento they wanted to build. It was a nice project. I think they had a two and a half million dollar budget. And I said, well, who is your designer? And they said, well, my wife, you know, she's, she can design it. So, okay, well, what does she do? What does she use for software? What's her, oh, well, she has a really good eye. Yeah. This is, there's five bathrooms in this house. Like, I, you don't understand what goes oh into this. God. And he wasn't willing to hire a designer. Yeah. And we actually walked away from the project. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons. Probably for that. saved yeah. yourself a couple of ulcers in, because of that. <laughs> like, we just yeah, don't. You're just then not to have to do it. What happened? No, so just no is the the end of it. No, I want an elevation drawing that I could go build too, and I can give it to my team, and we can go build. Right? I'm not figuring it out mm-hmm. while we're flying the plane. That's not helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, because no. we build from drawings and documents, and if we're just going off of what she said or he said and what they wanted, it, and it's going to be wrong, and we're going to end up eating the cost of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's not make for an efficient mm-hmm. project. We're going to have rework. I mean, it's just going to be a nightmare. So we learn that. Or you're and, waiting. Uh, yeah, we won't build a doghouse without designer. I mean, seriously. <laughs> Can we quote you on that? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to see a doghouse design Please. here soon. <laughs> I would love to design a doghouse. (laughs) 24 goals. Hey, Sean, I don't know about you, but Pinterest has been on my to-do list of, I got to figure out how to use it again for literally years. (laughs) It's definitely one of those things that if you've just been using it as a brain dump location, you're not using it right. Yeah. Pinterest is not just for inspo anymore, although that's still there. It can be super strategic and actually get you new clients. Yes. So we're sort of reframing the thought process around Pinterest with our very first hottie homeroom course, Pinterest for Interior Designers Masterclass. It's two-parter, so you get both sessions for the same price. And if you can catch the live session, we recommend it. Otherwise, it's going to be recorded and available to watch on your own 
but you also get two workbooks that really are going to show you the step-by-step of everything we talk about. Yes. And we've partnered with our Pinterest expert, Leah Reiner, and she's really power-packed the courses so that way you can optimize everything that you're doing to make Pinterest work for you to drive new traffic and help generate more leads for your business. You're not just listening to us talk about blah, blah, blah. Here's why Pinterest is great. Yes, we have an actual expert who does this (laughs) day in and day out, and she's going to be showing us all the details and how-tos. Yep, you got it. How to find trends, how to put them in captions to get people to read them. And probably the best part for me was realizing that Pinterest pins stay active for months, sometimes years longer than what the Instagram algorithm does. And you don't have to show up and show your face like you do on Instagram. (laughs) I know some of you don't want to do that. So it's a way to get yourself out there without getting yourself out there. Exactly. So head to shop.hotingdesignersclub.com and learn more about our Pinterest for Interior Designers Masterclass. See you there, hotties. So what would you guys say is the most challenging part of your business? Mm. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> <laughs> I got to think about it. Steve, you go first. <laughs> I, well, I think, it, you know, I know the answer. It's customer expectations. The work itself is, oh. it, for us, Heather and I, is not very hard. I mean, it's, it has its challenges, but we've been doing this for a long, long time. And it's just, you know, every human beings are all different people. And everyone has different moods and emotions and the things they fixate on, what they, you know, are, you know, nice people. They're just generally not nice people. They're grumpy people. We've had clients, we've had projects that were very difficult and the client was extremely happy. We have a client, we've had projects that were like really kind of smooth and the client was frustrated with every little thing. And so dealing with the expectations because it varies so much is the hardest thing. And just, you know, that's Mm -hmm. another reason why we have this pre-construction process. We can vet out those, those problematic clients early on. And then also maintaining a, a high standard, but an equal standard through our company for all our projects. And sometimes our standard quality is much higher than our clients. And sometimes our standard quality is lower than our clients. But as long as you maintain that standard quality, you're going to do well. Do you have other steps in place to vet clients before you get into pre-construction even? I guess, what do you ask or how do you kind of try to prepare yeah. them in those initial engagements? Let me take that, Heather. Yeah, that's more you're in, Jen. I think, you know, through our process, we have a lot of steps, right? And so the more steps you have and the more you kind of draw it out, but not too much, the more you're going to really vet out these clients, whether you're a designer or a contractor, more steps you have. Like right. we have a form on our website. It's, it's a little bit cumbersome, but every client has to fill it out. If they don't want to fill out a form, we're probably not even going to get very far in this process. So you fill out the form mm-hmm. and then we do either an in-person or virtual meeting. We do our in-person meetings at our office. If you're not willing to come to our office first, you want me to come to your house? Again, probably not going to be a good fit. So by having these steps, yeah, it sounds like kind of difficult, but you take the control of the process into your own hands and the customer's following your process, not their process. Because most contractors, you call them, they're going to answer it, they're going to jot down it, they're going to go to your house tomorrow, they're going to look at it, and then they're going to give you a bit. Us, you're going to call us, you're going to fill out a form, we have a phone intake survey, you're going to come to our office, we're going to talk about some more. And then we may go to your house, we may not, we may need pre-construction for that. And believe it or not, that whole process works out pretty well. The reason why it works out well is our clients, number one, they come to our office, they see our offices, we have nice offices, logo trucks outside our name on the building. They know we're not going to be the cheapest guy in town just by seeing that. 
And then we like to have both the husband and wife there or partners or whoever it is, both decision makers there and see how they interact with each other. If both partners are rude to each other, well, they're probably going to be like that to you or if one talks over another one. And so there's a lot of factors that go into that and vetting out the clients. That's really what our primary job is, is vetting out the clients, not so much the work because the work we know we can do. That's not an issue. Yeah, we talk a lot about that of trying to get clients into our, we use different things, train, car, whatever, but like we have to remain the driver in our project on the design side. And if someone's constantly trying to grab the wheel from the passenger seat or the back seat, like it's just not going to work. And we're always trying to kind of figure this out of how to figure it out early because sometimes they slip through yeah. in my experience. But client expectations, I was telling Heather that before we started recording. That's just my biggest issue right now. And I love that idea of just adding more steps, like I guess more hoops for them to jump through without being annoying, I guess is the trick, right? Yeah. There's a lot of education factors that go into it too. I mean, there's a whole education of how we're going to take you through pre-construction and what that's going to look like. And now we have your whole scope and you understand how we're going to go build your job and how much it's going to cost. But now you got to go to construction and we have a whole meeting and a five-page document we go through about what to expect during your construction, right? It's going to be dirty. You need to secure your animals. My working hours, right? Just because, you know, I'm working in your home doesn't mean I don't have a family. So, you know, let's be respectful. This is how I want to be communicated to. How do you want to be communicated to? Do you want to text? Do you want a phone call? Like, again, it's just back to like constantly setting that expectation to the client every single step of what they're going to see. And don't worry you know, we got you, but this is what might happen. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a big change for us in, and we've spent a couple episodes talking with designers about how do we vet? What are we asking questions we put on our forms, things like that. I think the the challenge or the difference in what we're talking about here too, is something that we can take from this as designers and that we've tried to get designers to kind of step into their power with is you guys are pretty clear about this is like the scale and scope of projects that we're working on. And this is just what we do in the same sense, designers of all different levels, whether they're new or not, can everyone has an idea of what I won't do anymore. So it's kind of setting that starting line right, right in front of those things you won't do and just say, okay, I'm no longer doing single room projects anymore, whatever it is. And I think as designers, we often approach it from a place of, of, oh, we're, there's scarcity or we're not going to find it or no one will do it. No. They, yeah, if we say no, yeah. maybe there will be something bigger. But I think that tolerance level and finding that space where you stand, where you say, if they're even just marginally close to this line, they'll probably stick with me and at least get through the form or at least get through a phone call or something like that. And everyone else was never really meant to be the client anyway. You guys are pointing out it just is going to lead to frustration. Yeah. You're going to eat more costs. And Rebecca and I both know that's true because we've talked about those client projects where that exactly happened. Was This person was marginal to begin with. We did it anyway, whether we saw all the red flags or not. And we ended up losing money, losing emotional energy or being frustrated or they were angry. And so I mean, it never created... Therapy. Yeah, it never created... The profit you wanted, it didn't create a portfolio worthy project you wanted, it didn't create 
a joyous and loyal fan who was going to use good word of mouth to spread my business name all over the place either. So if I didn't get any of that, then what was the point? You know, and we invest all that time and energy. And for you guys, you're locked in for literal years Mm -hmm. from the time it's just whether it's a plot of dirt or whether it's a whole home remodel, it's years. So to get to the end and feel like we didn't make enough money or the project didn't turn out great or the people hate us now, that's even more awful when you've spent all of that time into it. Yeah. I mean, so Sean, I I think it's important to read it. Well, I think it's important to reiterate is if someone wants to work with you, they will do the things you want them to do. And they will fill out a form. They will come to your office and meet with you. They will follow your process if they want to work with you. And you want to attract people who want to work with you. And so if you're a new designer, a new contractor, do I recommend putting all these plates, steps in place? Absolutely not. But you have to kind of earn your reputation to get to that point. And you know, a lot of designers I know, they charge for their initial consults to go to their house. I think that's awesome. I think everyone should do that. You're going to spend time and go to someone's house and give them give them something, but make sure you give them something in return, give them some tangible thing they can walk away from that they spent their money on more than you just kind of look and listen to their ideas. So with that pre-construction process, we do give people something tangible to walk away from. And to answer your question earlier, Rebecca, as a standalone product, it is a, it's a standalone contract with us and it is a standalone product for the client. They actually have a physical thing they walk away with, scope of work, you know, bids, whatever else it is. And you know, I really do think that Again, if someone wants to work with you, they're going to follow your process. Yeah, I know ideally you're not giving them that pre-construction documentation and then they go shop it around. But the, but I think it has helped like me in the past be able to just communicate why it happens, why contractors are requiring it now. And just knowing that they have the out, I guess, gets them to say yes more, even though they will most likely go forward with the person who's taken all this time that they've gotten to know that they now trust. So I do think it's just like more of a sales tactic versus anything, unless they have a bad experience, but I haven't had that happen. One thing that's helpful for us is, and if you're listening to this, you're in your own business, you need to realize that you're in sales and you need sales training and there's different methods you can go through and but sales training has been transform, you know, transformative for our business. And just, but it's more like listening to clients, what's their pain and how do we address their pain? Mm-hmm. What kind of training have you done? I know you've gone through a lot. Jen tells me stuff. Okay. <laughs> Jen learns a lot from you. <laughs> no, it's, and when you think of sales training, you think of, oh, I need a shower after. This is like slimy, right? But, you know, right. it's really, uh-huh. it's called Sandler training and there's different methods. And it's just, it really all Sandler is, it's all about an approach of just listening to your client and like asking more questions than giving answers. And so when I get on a sales call with someone, let's say it's on Zoom like this, I'll just talk to them and I'll say, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. It's going to be, might be weird. And they're like, no, ask questions, right? And it's like, why are you even doing this? Why are you putting $300,000? You know, what are you, what's your goals? And if you keep asking questions, you'll get to a point where you can start giving some answers if they want them. And I think people are really, um, really receptive to that of a different approach of because too many people, too many contractors, designers and whatnot, they go to clients and say, well, I've been in business for 30 years and this is my portfolio and like all the things about you, like it doesn't help them. They want to know how are you going to help them mm-hmm. and what's their pain? How are you going to solve that pain? Because I can show them beautiful kitchen but that doesn't help them. And all they really want is something that's you know, accessible for their grandmother to come and walk through or something. So the training I do, I've done for years, the Sandler training, and it's just about 
it's all about asking the right questions. And there's some good books online about it. You don't spend a ton of money, but um, yeah. I know a lot of designers don't like to think of themselves as salespeople. We've had these conversations before and we totally are. I mean, we're selling ourselves, our services up front, like you're talking about, but we have to constantly be selling our ideas as well. And then physical products and it's only sales, I think, now that I think about it. What else do we do that's not sales? I mean, the design process itself of creating it, planning it, whatever, is the artistic, creative side of it, which, yeah, is the smallest portion of what we do. But then we have to sell the thing. It's, you, just, you make a dress, now you have to sell the dress to someone. You've got to put it in a beautiful store, on a mannequin, have a fashion show, get it in a magazine, advertise it. And then you got to make have, it. Then you got to have great mm-hmm. salespeople in the store who go, "Oh my god, you look beautiful." You have to. That's all sales right there. Everything else is the sales part. And the, the smallest part was, "Here's my little sketch. Let's pick the materials. Let's put it together." Now we get someone to make it, put it on a rack, and then the rest of it is all sales in what we do. Yeah, and then right. heaven forbid the clients. Oh, <laughs> I want to tailor the dress, or now I want it to actually fit a little different across here. Then you got to go back and like braille them back yeah. in. a different color. Exactly. Yes. So you're constantly having to do that. Or actually, I want pants. Yeah. <laughs> Can we redesign <laughs> that? And I need it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I was that really got me intrigued when you guys did a few months ago, you were talking, you had this Instagram story series about how your renovation is the most, what was it? the least expensive it's going to ever be? Probably. Yeah, yeah. It was like right now is the cheapest time it will ever be to do a job. And I know you got quoted in Business of Home about it. And it was really interesting hearing... Because every... I mean, I hear it a lot still of clients saying, oh, I'm going to wait until the market comes down or the... um, Until prices come down. And you kind of laid out this idea of how that isn't happening. Do you have any thoughts, more thoughts you want to share or explain it better than yeah. I just did? I mean, Heather, are you okay if I talk about this and get in? Yeah. So I get that all the time. And it's people, I go, hey, your kitchen remodel is probably going to be $150,000. Or I give them a bid and they're like, you know what? We decided to wait until prices come down. And I've been hearing that for about five years now. And nine times out of 10, when they wait... They call us up a few years later and we had one client, you know, their addition at that time was, I think it was $200,000 for a bedroom addition. And they said, okay, we're going to wait till prices come down. And I said, okay, well, let me know when you're ready. And they called us a year and a half later in 2022. And they said, oh, okay, well, we've been hearing prices have come down. You know, where are we at with this? And I said, if you, your addition, that was 200,000, it's probably 250 right now. And they're like, well, why is that? Lumber's down. I said, yeah, well, lumber of your $250,000 project, lumber's only you know, $15,000. So yeah, lumber went down from $15,000 to $12,000. You know? But the reality is and people think that materials are a big part of this project. And materials certainly did increase during 2020 and they stabilized in 2022. They didn't really go back down to pre-pandemic levels. They kind of flattened out. But materials are like you know, 20% of a, of a job. And people are like, well, where's the other 80%? And the other 80% is, you know, labor, uh, subcontractors, overhead, $6 a gallon gas, right? That's where the other 80% is. And if you just go to the grocery store, you see, you see it in your bill. Everything is more and more expensive. I yeah. can tell you right now, if 80% of your project is labor and subcontractors, 
we have a huge labor shortage in the trades. You know, skilled plumbers are charging, if they have their own business, they're charging over $100 an hour, $100, $150 an hour. And they know that people are going to pay it because there's only so many of them. There's only so many contractors in town. Um, and the reality is, is those wages keep going up and they should be going up. I think that the skilled trades were paid, underpaid for a long time, personally, and they should keep going up. So the basis of that statement was like right now is the cheapest because I think what we're going to see is huge increases in labor costs in the next two, three years, even more so where our average kitchen model right now is 150,000. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes up to 200,000 in the next three years. And oh I just built a, I just built a pool at our house or Heather and I, we built a pool and I've been through this experience. We hired a contractor, we did all that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I only have so many more summers with my kids swimming. Right. And so I could wait and cross my fingers and hope the prices are going to come down. But then I missed out one more summer with my kids. And so if you're going to do it. Something you want to do, like you can't get that time back. And so I always tell people, if this is something you want and you hate this kitchen, you've hated it forever and you can't host Thanksgiving in it. Well, how many more Thanksgivings are you going to have? You know, those are things that, that are intangible. I mean, that's a really compelling story with that. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and we all know having lived through the pandemic is we don't know what's going to happen that's going to change all of our yeah. lives and our economy and everything. I mean, it's just constantly in flux. And yeah, labor needs to go up. No one can afford to live. So it's hard. I mean, we we pay our carpenters you know, starting out. You know, if you have if you come to us with very little or no experience, you're coming at, you know, high 20s an hour. And if you're skilled, you have a lot of experience, right? You're making six figures probably as a carpenter. So, yeah. but that's just base wage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To include... create a survivable, like decent quality of living for someone yeah. who works hard now, that's where we need to be. What yeah. about medical? What about retirement? Right. Sure. And so, so many contractors or subcontractors didn't, they, we, like when you talk to some of them who are like, oh, I've been doing this so long or I don't really have a retirement strategy. Yes. It's because everything constantly would, had to go back out because it was under the wages were being suppressed for so long that, yeah, a plumber really is only valuable until they can't physically be a plumber anymore. And then they never had a way to leave the industry or if, you know, some of them, even one locally was like, I'm paying all these, an electrician that I'm close with. He's just, I'm literally helping them pay for school to get people into this now because no one, we were taught for years, no one wants to do this. We all want to do service-based jobs and sit at computers and be in offices. And no one wants to do this type of physical work or no one wants to be involved in trades. And it's so true that you see that all across the country. Everybody has a freaking PhD and a master's degree in like communications but no one can but do no, anything. But no job, to, but also making, you know, 50 grand a year if they're lucky at a desk and mm-hmm. they're not happy with it or they don't like it and they've kind of avoided trades for so long, you know, and that's I, just, nope. what a shame. I have friends, a lot of friends with teenagers and well, I was going to ask, do you see more education or the ability to apprentice? Is that becoming more common? Because we desperately need more trade, skilled trades people. Heather, maybe you can share. You know, we do have four carpenters on staff, so we have our own construction company within a company. But Heather, maybe you can talk about that. Yeah. And and how we develop. Yeah, both Steve and I are really passionate in that and wanting to not only see this as an opportunity, because to your Sean, to your point, Sean, that was kind of a, a stigma, I felt like when you know we were in school, it wasn't really that wasn't like a profession that, you know, you were going somewhere if you did that after high school. And so seeing more of, you know, uh, local contractors and GCs and specialty trades 
going into schools and recruiting and having, you know, these build competitions and just showing that this is an option, showing that there is this other career path that you could go into that if college isn't for you, that this is something you want to work with your hands. And there's a ton of um, education, I feel like that's out there more so than I would say 20 years ago, that this is an option. But it's not going to meet the demand of the people that are leaving the field. There's going to be this huge bubble where we do not have that. And so, you know, we're constantly putting it out there. You know, our kids are little, but our kids are already like, when do I get to go work for TCI, right? My five-year-old's ready to go swing a hammer. Mm. And I just think it's putting that out there and, and seeing what is possible and, and telling youth and getting the teenagers on the summers to come pick up trash. And, you know, you get an exposure, but you're not going to be the guy that picks some trash every summer. Next summer, you're the guy that's doing this. So it's a lot of hard work. Yeah, it is. And I hope that the trade schools start. I have a good friend who's in the Bay Area and one, she has teenage sons and they were touring this really cool trade school that had this amazing like construction educational program where the kids were just learning even the tech side of the construction industry. And she was like, okay, like where can he sign up? And they're like, oh, there's a four-year wait list or something Mm -hmm. because there's just not enough educational opportunities. So I don't know, something's gotta, something's gotta happen. But I think until it's not an overnight change. And I think that's why I say that right now is the cheapest it's gonna be until we get the workforce up. Because what we're seeing is a more and more increased housing demand and an aging housing stock that you know a lot of our houses in the country were built between you know 1960 and 1980. You have this huge housing stock that's turning over. You have more and more population growth. You have less and less people to do the work. So it's natural that this, this stuff's going to cost more and more money. It's not all about materials. So you know if you're on the fence, if you're if clients on the fence about remodeling, like you hear it from the source, it's going to get more and more expensive. We're seeing just flat across the board eight to ten percent inflation per year. 10% on a $300,000 renovation, it can go from 300 to 330 within a span of months. So, you know, I, I would just, yeah, that's why, where that comes from. It was kind of a triggering statement because it does trigger a lot of people. I got a lot of backlash on that. It's true. We'll link the article that was in Business of Home in our notes because it was really helpful the way you guys laid that out. I don't want it to sound like we're like screaming into the void about it. I think just for designers, don't lose hope. Like it's, there's still a lot of work out there. There's still that happening, but I think a lot of our, the frustration we get is when we're literally talking to the wrong person about this. Like we're talking to the client who says, I have 10K for a, you know, a bathroom remodel. It's the frustration comes when we are like trying to force it to work or get convince them to make it work. And I've joked before about how I don't want to be the first phone call. Like I'd rather yeah. they have Googled, researched, called to two other yeah. designers or contractors or whatever. And then they call me finally at the end of all that and say, now that I'm aligned and I decided that I'm ready and I want to do it, now I finally feel like I'm on board. You know, it's it's so painful. And I think we hear a lot from designers who are going through that pain because they're literally just talking to the wrong person about the wrong project from the beginning. And their pain of telling them it's never going to get cheaper, it will be more expensive is because they, were they have the, the money. Lot. Some, oh, they I mean, just don't want to part with yeah, it. Yeah, they just are yeah. just waiting it out because they think they're yeah. riding the market. So I think that back to putting our design or our sales hats on, that's like understanding and being able to communicate kind of just what the state of the world looks like and mm-hmm. well, I think talking about that with some knowledge. I think what we see, I think 
what's changed in the industry in the last five years is social media has been really great, but it's also really kind of diluted people's perceptions of what their house should look like. And you know, the example I give is if you look at our website, you look at our social media, we have beautiful homes and these are very expensive projects. And and it's just your feed on Instagram is is just completely saturated with two hundred thousand dollar kitchens and four million dollar homes. Yeah. And you just get this and I can't afford it. You know, like it is a lot in this stuff, right? And I think it's important to take design elements and put them into your project. And but the problem is people go, I want my kitchen to look like this. And I'm like, that's a three hundred thousand dollar kitchen. There's a hundred thousand dollars in just cabins in this kitchen. And mm-hmm. nobody's putting price tags on this stuff. You just see so much of it and you just assume that everyone has stuff like this. And so what 10, 15 years ago, kind of joke that, you know, every house built in 2006 was like all travertine throughout. There was one paint color and all the cabinets were maple, you know, raised panel. And black granite, granite kitchen, and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. Every room didn't have a different tile scheme and niches and you know edge detail and stuff. And, and so all this cool design stuff, I love it, but it's also increased these project costs a lot and made our projects beautiful. But just keep in mind that it doesn't mean that there aren't $10,000 kitchen or $10,000 bathrooms out there. You can do a bathroom for $10,000. It's just probably not going to need an interior designer. It's going to be you know prefab shower enclosure and a Lowe's you know, $200 vanity. But the, the issue is this, all this design information is so accessible and so saturating for people's, you know, what they see that a lot of times we're the bad bearer of bad news that, you know, what these projects actually cost. One example was we had a client come to our office about two weeks ago. They had all the plans done for a 9,000 square foot house, 8,000 square foot house. They had all the plans done. They spent $50,000 on plans. It's in permitting. They already own the land. And they wanted us to give them a bit. Well, like that's not our process, number one. Number two, I sat down with them. Like, What's your budget for this house? And they said it was two and a half million dollars. Two and a half million dollars sounds like a ton of money. I don't have two and a half million dollars spent on a house. But for an 8,000 foot house, it came out to 300 something dollars a square foot. And I'm like, this house is probably $500 a square foot. Where's the other million and a half going to come from? You're a million and a half dollars short on this house. Mm. And I was the first contractor they talked to. And like you said, Sean, I don't want to be the first. And I just kind of wa- watched their faces sink. And you're, you, you cannot build this house. You, you can talk to any contractor. You cannot build this price. And I said, yeah. what are you going to do if you can't do that? And he said, well, probably going to sell the land and, and just go a different route. I referred him to three other contractors. I said, talk to these guys. And, but they wasted $50,000. And I hate seeing that. And I wish I'd been brought in earlier in that process to help navigate this of, you know, a diff- different direction. But that's why we also want to be the, the last contractor to talk to. Maybe they don't need 8,000 square feet. I mean, really yeah, I mean, there's a whole, but then you got to yeah. go back and redesign it and go <laughs> the whole laundry list. again. So, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 Their plans are done. No, that totally yeah. sucks. Yeah. yeah. But, whoa. Or we're the killer of dreams. No, but even one of my architects, he's, I can design whatever you want, but you won't be able to build it. And he's very, I'm not in the business of creating something that will never be built. That's yeah. not fun for me. I don't want to do that. I will. T- I, and he's even told clients on calls. I'll happily take your money for that. You will not be able to build it for the numbers that you gave. Like he's really trying to hardline with stuff. Just you told me a number. And if you told like the last one, he was like, if you told me that there's now suddenly a million dollars that you came up with that I didn't know about before, let's keep talking. And then they're like, no, that's not the case. He's like, all right, back to where we were designing with, you know, I'm trying to aim at $400 a square foot for this remodel that you're working on. He's trying to really keep it aligned, but people will 
go wild, you know, and say, oh, well, we have two and a half million dollars. We must be able to get something like that. But it just yeah. gets out of line really fast. And I know that no, no designer is out there trying, or I should say most designers, 99% aren't trying to go out there and desi- design something that will never get built. They don't want to frustrate a client either. You know, they don't want to annoy a contractor either. They, they don't want to do that. We're just really misaligned. And I know that you guys are involved a lot in your community and in professional groups where you're trying to have these conversations and discussions. Can you t- tell us about some of those and how they're helping with that sort of broader discussion about projects and clients? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is like the collaboration process and finding number one, like we talked about, designers that want to partner want to work with you. It, we always love it. Like Steve mentioned, when we're brought in and we kind of get a chance to kind of talk about what the goals are with the client. And you know, we might get some questions from the design side of, Hey, we really want to make sure that, you know, this kitchen has symmetry. Can we take that wall out? You know, we'll go cut into it. We'll see. No, there's no post there. You could take that out. So when we get to have that, we get, we like that. And then it gives us a chance to execute on the design side when we go to build and understanding where the designer is coming from. I think some of that is a lot of relationships. It's going back to that relationship with designers and you know we know we're going to go build and we kind of understand the vision that a designer wants or the architect's looking for. I think a lot of it's putting yourself out there to network, right? Where like Steve mentioned, he's in Nari and being involved not only in understanding you know, our own industry, but subtrades and partnering with our subtrades and really putting yourself out there for kind of those like really harsh conversations where sometimes it's, hey, let's talk about this design. And I think that partnering really makes it easier. So for everybody, when we go to build, we're really are that team. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a local NARI chapter, National Association for Modeling. And I, a lot of the contractors, you know, we all, I think people realize that we're all kind of the good contractors. We're all of us are friends. We talk, right? And we, we, oh, did you get that client, the Smith client? And we talk about this stuff all the time. And it's, but I'm all about making the industry better. So, you know, Heather and I, we haven't been doing residential construction for 20 years. You know, we were in commercial construction for 15 years before this. And in that industry, you know, we're, we're part of the builders exchange and we're at different events and we, you know, it was very collaborative in a lot of ways with other commercial contractors at a high level. When we came to residential, we're like, this is pretty disjointed. Everyone just seems to, you know, keep their chips close to them and there's no collaboration. Nobody wants to work with designers. And, and so when I, we came in, we kind of started trying to shake things up a little bit and let's get the younger contractors together. Let's all talk. Let's figure out how to implement our processes. I've sent out our pre-construction uh, proposal to probably four different contractors in town. Of, Here's how we do it. Here's our proposal. And they, I've actually seen it come back to me, my own proposal from the client in a weird circular way because they're kind of copying and pasting the same terms we have. So my goal is to make the industry better, at least in Sacramento, through you know more education, more awareness, more just more collaboration. And I think that's kind of where we've gotten a lot of traction in our business, just through through collaboration and not you know isolating ourselves. That's awesome. And you guys have a kind of I don't remember what you called it, but it's almost like a mastermind with other construction companies all over the country, right? Mike's explaining that right. Yeah. So we belong to a group called Remodelers Advantage. And so we have a group of about 10 to 12 remodelers, contractors that meet two times a year. And we're all throughout the United States. 
the non-competing markets and we meet, we deep dive into our financials, you know, really kind of look at our process overall gives us a chance to step back from our businesses and look at it from a, a higher elevation and also hold each other accountable for things that we want to implement in our business and where we're taking things and direction and growth and those kind of things. So really acts as an advisory board, also gives us a pulse on kind of what's going on in other markets. We have other groups that are also in California and we have other contractors that are on the East Coast. So what's everybody seeing? What, you know, is it just a barometer in our region? Is it, you know, throughout? So it's been a really, a really key piece of our business. We've been involved for about four years now and it's a great opportunity for us to see other contractors and how they operate, but also a chance for us two times a year to get away for a week and really focus on our business. Yeah. It's it just, it, you know, if we're, we're seeing a slowdown in things, let's say, oh man, we have really slow May and June. You know, we talked to our group and it's sometimes what we're seeing is national, nationwide, and or is it just, so what can we do each week? And so some ideas of always being able to pivot and have that uh, board to lean on. Yeah. We're constantly telling designers to do that within their own communities and find their own designer besties or we like I have another group of designers that we have a little mini mastermind with locally and we can be really open and transparent with each other whether it's this is a specific situation I'm going through or hey somebody texted me today I'm looking for a towel vendor like we just can help each other and when we're on our own we're all small independent business independent business owners totally need that so Again, designers find friends. You don't have to compete. So one of the last things we want to know is what does the future look like for either Heather and Steve or and Heather and Steve with Tankers Lake Construction? I think you get might get different answers from each of us. But you know, I'll I'll start and you know, Heather and I, we have young kids. And you know, the reason why I have this business is to really be family focused for us and our employees. As our company's grown, we've grown extremely fast, but we've kept family in focus. And I'm really proud of that. I think, you know, I don't think we're going to see the extreme growth we've seen in the last five years, but, you know, we still want to keep growing. We hired a recently hired an operations manager who's been starting very soon and kind of help us take some more outside directional approach to the business. And so our project's average size is going to continue to increase. Probably we only do 12 to 15 projects a year. We're pretty small on that, but we do really high quality projects. We're going to keep doing that. Heather and I both kind of want to you know, step out of the day-to-day of the business if we can more and more as time goes on. So as our kids get older, we can go to more of those sports and stuff too. So I don't see us growing to this massive company or you know, expanding other markets or anything. Just really keep doing a good job where we're at. We like building really cool projects for cool people. That's really what it comes down to. What do you think, Heather? Yeah, I mean, the goal is to build the business so that it can operate without Heather and Steve, but still we could be a part of it, but not the people that have to, you know, make sure all the pieces and parts come together. So that's the goal and really building from inside our team up. I'm super excited with the people that we have on the team and their growth opportunity. And I think that's really what we're trying to create and being able to, you know, increase their salaries and, you know, 401k and bonuses. And that's kind of our piece of, you know, we didn't build a business just for us. You know, it works out that we get to have the hours that we want, but we also want to genuinely help the people that come in and work in this organization and work for us. And so we, we love that aspect of it. And so I want to continue to give those people more opportunities to grow. And so sometimes you have to step out of the way. So somebody has an opportunity to grow. 
I think that's the big overarching goal for us in the next, you know, probably less than five years. Long term, I don't know. I don't know where we'll end up. I mean, Steve doesn't sit still, so I'm sure we'll be on some other big adventure soon. But, you know, I've been really getting involved more with women in residential construction. And so that's been kind of a a passion project for me. So I don't know, maybe more uh, along those lines. I love to, I love to teach at Sac State, teach a construction management class. I'd love to. It's things I want to do, right? I, I want to make, I want to make our industry in Sacramento better. And I want to make residential construction in particular better and serve on the board and area directors more and be moved to national level. So Heather and I are both kind of passionate about doing things outside of our business. Our business is like a vessel to do things we are passionate about. And so we got to get the business running, you know, more on its own and then, and focus more on these things we want to do, like really growing other people professionally. More leadership. I love that. I want to thank you guys both so much for being on the show. And if you could tell our listeners where they should follow you and find you. Well, Heather and I are both pretty active on this Instagram. So we both run our own page, really candid on the stories, try to go on there daily and talk about what we're doing. So Instagram is really the most, most active thing we're on. We also obviously house and Facebook and our website. And we will put links to Tinker's Lake Construction for your Instagram and your website in our show notes for the hotties who are listening. They can find you there. And thank you both for being so generous and open about your process and your steps and how to make our projects better. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Stay hot, designers. Thanks for listening to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast. For more on what we talked about today, check out the show notes. Your support helps us grow, so share with your design besties. And subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Our conversations continue on Instagram. And be sure to download our monthly resources on our website and our Patreon. Hey, Sean. I don't know about you, but Pinterest has been on my to-do list of... I got to figure out how to use it again for literally years. (laughs) It's definitely one of those things that if you've just been using it as a brain dump location, you're not using it right. Yeah. Pinterest is not just for inspo anymore, although that's still there. It can be super strategic and actually get you new clients. Yes. So we're sort of reframing the thought process around Pinterest with our very first Hottie Homeroom course. Pinterest for Interior Designers Masterclass. It's two-parter, so you get both sessions for the same price. And if you can catch the live session, we recommend it. Otherwise, it's going to be recorded and available to watch on your own. But you also get two workbooks that really are going to show you the step-by-step of everything we talk about. Yes. And we've partnered with our Pinterest expert, Leah Reiner, and she's really power-packed the courses so that way you can optimize everything that you're doing to make Pinterest work for you to drive new traffic and help generate more leads for your business. You're not just listening to us talk about blah, blah, blah. Here's why Pinterest is great. Yes, we have an actual expert who does this day (laughs) in and day out. And she's going to be showing us all the details and how-tos. Yep, you got it. How to find trends, how to put them in captions to get people to read them. And probably the best part for me was realizing that Pinterest pins stay active for months, sometimes years longer than what the Instagram algorithm does. And you don't have to show up and show your face like you do on Instagram. (laughs) 
I know some of you don't want to do that. So it's a way to get yourself out there without getting yourself out there. Exactly. So head to shop.hottingdesignersclub.com and learn more about our Pinterest for Interior Designers Masterclass. See you there, hotties.